0: Chapter 45, The Affidavit. So far as what there may be of a narrative in this book, and indeed as uh, indirectly touching one or two very interesting and curious particulars in the habits of sperm whales, the foregoing chapter in its earlier part is as important a one as will be found in this volume but the leading matter of it requires to be still further and more familiarly enlarged upon in order to be adequately understood, and uh, moreover to take away any incredulity which uh, profound ignorance of the entire subject may induce in some minds as to the natural verity of the main points of this affair. I uh, care not to perform this part of my task, methodically, but shall be content to produce the desired impression by separate citations of items, practically or reliably known to me as a whaleman. And from these citations, I take it, the conclusion aimed at will naturally follow of itself. First, I have personally known three instances where a whale after taking after receiving a harpoon has effected a complete escape and after an interval in one instance of 3 years has been again struck by the same hand and slain when the two irons being both marked by the same private cipher have been taken from the body in the instance where 3 years intervene between the flinging of the two harpoons and i uh, think it may have been Something more than that. Uh, The man who darted him, happening in the interval to go in a trading ship on a voyage to Africa, went ashore there, joined a discovery party, and penetrated far into the interior where he traveled for a period of nearly two years often endangered by serpents, savages, tigers, poisonous miasmas, with all the other common perils, incident to wandering in the heart of unknown regions. Meanwhile, the whale he had struck must also have been on its travels. No doubt it had thrice circumnavigated the globe, brushing with its flanks all the coasts of Africa, but to no purpose. This man and this whale again came together, and the one vanquished the other. I say, I myself have known three instances similar to this. That is, in two of them, I saw the whales struck, and upon the second attack saw the two irons with their respective marks cut in them, afterward taken from the dead fish. In the three-year instance, it so fell out that I was in the boat both times, first and last, and the last time distinctly recognized a peculiar sort of uh, huge mole under the whale's eye, which I had observed there three years previous. I say three years, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was more than that. Here are three instances, then, which I personally know the truth of, but I have heard of many other instances from persons whose veracity in the matter there's no good ground to impeach. Secondly, it is well known in the sperm whale fishery, however ignorant the world ashore may be of it, that there have been several memorable historical instances where a particular whale in the ocean has been at distant times and places popularly cognizable. Why such a whale became thus marked was not altogether, and originally owing to his uh, bodily peculiarities as distinguished from other whales, for uh, however peculiar in that respect any chance whale may be, they soon put an end to his peculiarities by uh, killing him and boiling him down into a peculiarly valuable oil. No, the reason was this, that from the fatal experiences of the fishery There hung a terrible prestige of perilousness about uh, such a whale as there did about Rinaldo Rinaldini, insomuch that most fishermen were content to recognize him by merely touching their tarpaulins when he would be discovered lounging by them on the sea, without seeking to cultivate a more intimate acquaintance like some poor devils ashore that happen to know an irascible great man. They, they make distant, unobtrusive salutations to him in the street, lest they, uh, if they pursued the acquaintance further, they might receive a summary thump for their presumption. But not only did the, each of these famous whales enjoy great individual celebrity. Now, you, you may call it an ocean-wide renown, Not only was he famous in life and now is immortal in folks' stories after death, but he was admitted into the rights, privileges, and distinctions of a name, had as much a name indeed as as Cambyses or or Caesar. Was it not so, O Timur Tom, thou famed Leviathan, scarred like an iceberg, who so long didst lurk in the oriental straits of that name, whose spout was oft seen from the palmy beach of Ambay? Was it not so, O New England, New Zealand Zac, thou terror of all cruisers that crossed their wakes in the vicinity of the tattoo land? Was it not so, O Morquan, King of Japan, whose lofty jet they say at times assumed the semblance of a snow-white cross against the sky? Was it not so, O Don Miguel, thou Chilean whale, marked like an old tortoise with mystic hieroglyphics upon the back? In plain prose, here are four whales as well known to the students of Cetacean history as uh, Marius Ursula to the classic scholar. But this is not all. New Zealand Tom and Don Miguel, after at various times creating great havoc among the boats of different vessels, were finally gone in quest of, systematically hunted out, chased, and killed by valiant whaling captains who heaved up their anchors with that express object as much in view as in setting out through the Narragansett woods, Captain Butler of old had it in his mind to capture that notorious, murderous savage, Anowan, the headmost warrior of the Indian King Philip. I uh, do not know where I can find a better place than, than just here to make mention of one or two other things, which to me seem important, as in, in printed form establishing in all respects the, the reasonableness of the whole story of the white whale, and more especially the catastrophe. For this is one of those disheartening instances where truth requires full as much bolstering as error. So ignorant are most landsmen of some of the plainest and most palpable wonders of the world that without some hints touching the plain facts historical and otherwise, of the fishery, they might scout at uh, at Moby Dick as a monstrous fable, or, still worse and more detestable, a hideous and intolerable allegory. First, though most men have some vague, uh, flitting ideas of the general perils of the grand fishery, yet they have nothing like a fixed, vivid conception of those perils, and the frequency with which they recur. One reason, perhaps, is that not one in fifty of the actual disasters and deaths by by casualties in the fishery ever finds a public record at home, however transient and immediately forgotten that record. Do you suppose that, that, that that poor fellow there Who this moment, perhaps caught by the whale line off the coast of New Guinea, is being carried down to the bottom of the sea by the sounding leviathan. Do you suppose that that poor fellow's name will appear in the newspaper obituary you'll read tomorrow at your breakfast? (laughs) No, because the mails are very irregular between here and New Guinea. In fact, did you ever hear what might be called regular news uh, direct or indirect from New Guinea? Yet I will tell you that upon one particular voyage, which I made to the Pacific, among many others we spoke thirty different ships, every one of which had had a death by a whale, some of them more than one, and three that had each lost a boat's crew. For God's sake, be economical with your lamps and candles. Not a gallon you burn, but at least one drop of man's blood was spilled for it. Secondly. People ashore have indeed some indefinite idea that a whale is an enormous creature of enormous power, but I have ever found that when narrating to them some specific example of this twofold enormousness, they have significantly complimented me upon my facetiousness. When I declare upon my soul, I had no more idea of being facetious than than Moses when he wrote the history of the plagues of Egypt. But Fortunately, the special point I here seek can be established upon testimony entirely independent of my own. That point is this. The sperm whale is in some cases sufficiently powerful, knowing, and judiciously malicious, as with direct aforethought, to stave in, utterly destroy, and sink a large ship. And what is more, the sperm whale has done it. First, in the year 1820, the ship Essex, Captain Pollard of Nantucket, was cruising in the Pacific Ocean. One day she saw spouts, lowered her boats, and gave chase to a shoal of sperm whales. Ere long, several of the whales were wounded, when suddenly a very large whale, escaping from the boats, issued from the shoal and bore directly down upon the ship. Dashing his forehead against her hull, he so stove her in that in less than 10 minutes she settled on down and fell over. Not a surviving plank of her has been seen since. After the uh, severest exposure, part of the crew reached the land in their boats. Being returned home at last, Captain Pollard once more sailed for the Pacific in command of another ship. But the gods shipwrecked him again upon uh, unknown rocks and breakers. For the second time his ship was utterly lost, and forthwith forswearing the sea, he has never tempted it since. At this day, Captain Pollard is a resident of Nantucket. I've seen Owen Chase, who was uh, chief mate of the Essex at the time of the tragedy. I've read his plain and uh, faithful narrative. I've conversed with his son, and all this within a few miles of the scene of the catastrophe. The following are extracts from from Chase's narrative. Uh, Every fact seemed to warrant me in concluding that it was anything but chance which directed his operations. He made two several attacks upon the ship at a short interval between them, both of which, according to their direction, were calculated to do us the most injury by being made ahead, and thereby combining the speed of the two objects for the shock, to effect which the exact maneuvers which he made were necessary. His aspect was most horrible, and such as indicated resentment and fury. He came directly from the shoal which we had just before entered, and in which we had struck three of his companions, as if fired with revenge for their sufferings. Again, at all events, the whole circumstances taken together, all happening before my own eyes, and producing at the time impressions in my mind of decided calculating mischief on the part of the whale, many of which impressions I cannot now recall. Induce me to be satisfied that I am correct in my opinion. Here are his reflections some time after quitting the ship, during a black night in an open boat, which almost despairing of reaching any hospitable shore. The dark ocean and swelling waters were nothing. The fears of being swallowed up by some dreadful tempest or dashed upon hidden rocks, with all the other ordinary subjects of fearful contemplation, seemed scarcely entitled to a moment's thought the dismal-looking wreck, and the horrid aspect and revenge of the whale wholly engrossed my reflections until day again made its appearance. In another place, page 45, he says, he speaks of the mysterious and mortal attack of the animal. Secondly, the ship Union, also of Nantucket, was in the year 1807 totally lost off the Azores by a similar onset, but the... uh, Authentic particulars of this catastrophe I've never chanced to encounter, though from the whale hunters I have now and then heard casual allusions to it. Thirdly, some eighteen or twenty years ago, Commodore J., then then commanding an American sloop of war of the first class happened to be dining with a party of whaling captains on board a Nantucket ship in the harbor of Oahu, Sandwich Islands. Conversation turning upon whales, the Commodore was pleased to be skeptical, touching the uh, amazing strength ascribed to them by the professional gentleman present. He peremptorily denied, for example, that any whale could so smite his stout sloop of as to cause her to leak so much as a thimbleful. Very good. But there's more coming. Some weeks after, the Commodore set sail in this impregnable craft for Valparaiso. But he was stopped on the way by a uh, portly sperm whale that begged a few moments' confidential business with him. That business consisted in fetching the Commodore's craft such a thwack that with all his pumps going, he made straight for the nearest port to heave down and repair. I'm not superstitious, but uh, I uh, consider the Commodore's interview with that whale as providential. Was not Saul of Tarsus converted from unbelief by a similar fright? I tell you the sperm whale will stand no nonsense. I'll now refer you to Langdorf's voyages for a little circumstance in point particularly interesting to the writer hereof. Langsdorff, you, you must know by the way, was attached to the uh, Russian Admiral Krusenstern's famous discovery expedition in the beginning of the present century. Captain Langsdorff thus begins his 17th chapter. By the 13th of May Our ship was ready to sail, and the next day we were out in the open sea on our way to Ochoch. The weather was very clear and fine, but so intolerably cold that we were obliged to keep on our fur clothing. For some days we had very little wind. It was not till the 19th that a brisk gale from the northwest sprang up. An uncommon large whale. The body of which was larger than the ship itself lay almost at the surface of the water, but was not perceived by anyone on board till the moment when the ship, which was in full sail, was almost upon him, so that it was impossible to prevent its striking against him. We were thus placed in the most imminent danger, as this gigantic creature, setting up its back, raised the ship three feet at least out of the water. The masts reeled, the sails fell altogether, while we who were below all sprang instantly upon the deck, concluding that we had struck upon some rock. Instead of this, we saw the monster, sailing off with the utmost gravity and solemnity. Captain DeWolf applied immediately to the pumps to examine whether or not the vessel had received any damage from the shock, but we found that, very happily, it had escaped entirely uninjured. Now, the, the Captain De wolf here alluded to as a commanding the ship in question is a New Englander, who after a long life of unusual adventures as a sea captain, this day resides in the village of Dorchester near Boston. I have the honor of being a nephew of his. I have particularly questioned him concerning this passage in Langsdorf. He substantiates every word. The the ship, however, was by no means a a large one, a Russian craft built on the Siberian coast and purchased by my uncle after bartering away the vessel in which he sailed from home. In that up-and-down manly book of old-fashioned adventure so full too of honest wonders, the voyage of Lionel Wafer, one of ancient Dampier's old chums, I found a little matter set down so like that, just quoted from Langsdorf, that I cannot forbear inserting it here for a corroborative example if such be needed. Lionel, it seems, was on his way to John Ferdinando, as he he calls the the modern Juan Fernandez. In our way, thither, he says, about four o'clock in the morning, when we were about 150 leagues from the main of America, our ship felt a terrible shock, which put our men in such consternation that they could hardly tell where they were or what to think. But everyone began to prepare for death, and indeed the shock was so sudden and violent that we took it for granted. The ship had struck against a rock, but when the amazement was a little over, we cast the lead and sounded, but found no ground. The suddenness of the shock made the guns leap in their carriages, and several of the men were shaken out of their hammocks. Captain Davis, who lay with his head on a gun, was thrown out of his cabin. Lionel then goes on to impute the shock to an earthquake and seems to substantiate the imputation by stating that a great earthquake uh, somewhere about that time did actually do great mischief along the Spanish land. But I should not much wonder if, in the darkness of that early hour of the morning, the shock was, after all, caused by an unseen whale vertically bumping the hull from beneath. I might proceed with several more examples, one way or another, known to me of the great power and malice at times of the sperm whale. In more than one instance he's been known not only to chase the assailing boats back to their ships, but to pursue the ship itself, and long withstand all the lances hurled at him from its decks. The English ship Pusey Hall can tell a story on that head, and as for his strength, let me say that there have been examples where the lines attached to a running sperm whale have in a calm been transferred to the ship and secured there. The whale towing her great hull through the water as a horse walks off with of a cart. Again, it is very often observed that if the sperm whale once struck is allowed time to rally, he then acts, not so often with blind rage as with willful, deliberate designs of destruction to his pursuers, nor is it without conveying some eloquent indication of his character that upon being attacked, he will frequently open his mouth and retain it in that dread expansion for several consecutive minutes. But I must be content with only one more and a concluding illustration, a remarkable and most significant one by which you will not fail to see that not only is the most marvelous event in this book, corroborated by plain facts of the present day, but that these marvels, like all marvels, are mere repetitions of the ages, so that for the millionth time we say, Amen with Solomon. Verily, there is nothing new under the sun. In the 6th century, Christian century, lived Procopius, a Christian magistrate of Constantinople, in the days when Justinian was emperor and Belisarius general. As many know, he wrote the history of his own times, a work every way of uncommon value. By the best authorities, he was always been considered a most trustworthy and unexaggerating historian, except in some one or two particulars, not at all affecting the matter presently to be mentioned. Now, in this history of his, Procopius mentions that, uh, during the term of his prefecture at Constantinople, a great sea monster was captured in the neighboring Propontis or Sea of Marmora, after having destroyed vessels at intervals in those waters for a period of more than fifty years. A fact thus set down in substantial history cannot uh, easily be gainsay, nor is there any reason it should be. Of what precise species this sea monster was is not mentioned, but as he destroyed ships, as well as for other reasons, he, he must have been a whale. And I am strongly inclined to think a sperm whale, and I will tell you why. For a long time, I fancied that the sperm whale had been always unknown in the Mediterranean and the, the deep waters connecting with it. Even now, I am I, certain that those seas are uh, not and perhaps never can be in the present constitution of things a place for his habitual gregarious resort, but... Further investigations have recently proved to me that in modern times there have been isolated instances of the presence of the sperm whale in the Mediterranean. I'm told on good authority that on the Barbary Coast, a Commodore Davis of the British Navy found the skeleton of a sperm whale. Now, as a vessel of war readily passes through the Dardanelles, hence a sperm whale could, by the same route, pass out of the Mediterranean into the Propontis. In the preponderance, as far as I can learn, none of that peculiar substance called brit is to be found, the aliment uh, the of the right whale. But I have every reason to believe that the food of the sperm whale, squid or cuttlefish, lurks at the bottom of that sea, because large creatures, but by no means the largest of that sort, have been found at its surface. If, then, You properly put these statements together and reason upon them a bit, you will clearly perceive that according to all human reasoning, Procopius's sea monster that for half a century stove the ships of a Roman Empire must in all probability have been a sperm whale.